Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi there, this is Amina Keshen Kamel, and you're listening to Legal Ease. Today's episode is a grand buildup that is more than one year in the making. The first person who suggested exploring the topic of marijuana and bankruptcy was my bankruptcy law professor, Lara Cordes, who we have here today as a guest. She first introduced this particular topic to me over a year ago when I had just started the podcast. Then when Herbert Payne joined Legalese as my co-host, he also pitched covering marijuana industry on an episode. So here we are today. And today's episode is a product of teamwork from me, Herbert, Lara, Judge Daniel Collins, and Rafaela Safarian. Herbert has a strong vision for this episode, so he'll introduce today's topic. Thank you. Hello, this is Herb Payne. The legalization of marijuana is a hot-button issue in the legislatures, courts, and communities of our land. It seems that any discussion about it is laden with a combination of emotion, attitude, values, and health concerns. Studies vie with one another to determine its safety and propriety. Is it a portal drug? Is it a blessing to those who suffer from severe ailments? In whatever form these questions are raised about the value and benefits of cannabis, Marijuana is increasingly igniting discussions in courtrooms throughout America. In a subsequent discussion, we hope to shed further light on the health and criminalization issues related to marijuana distribution and use. However, in our conversation today, our goal is to unbundle the layer of legal issues as they relate to the business side of marijuana, specifically as they relate to banking, bankruptcy, and the alignment between federal and state law. To focus on these issues, we are joined by Judge Daniel Collins, United States Bankruptcy Judge for the District of Arizona, and Laura Cordes, an Associate Professor of Law at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Welcome to both of you. Let me start off by Judge Collins. Please tell us a bit about your background. Well, first of all, it's a real pleasure to be here, uh, Herb and Amina. Uh, Awfully nice of you to invite me down today um, and to be sitting next to to the famed uh, Professor Cordes, who's a real rising star in the bankruptcy world. Uh, She's a nationally known speaker, and it's uh, really wonderful to be a part of this with you here today. So first of all, I have to admit that uh, I'm not an Arizona State person. I, I went to U of A undergrad and law school. I got a finance accounting undergrad and then law uh, in law school. But that said, I'm still rooting for your Sun Devils every single game that they're not playing U of A. <laughs> so for 30 years, I was uh, practicing law in Phoenix, uh, all in the commercial space, and um, often represented banks and savings and loans, and it got me into the bankruptcy court on a regular basis. So eventually, um, my practice started steering towards bankruptcy, and uh, some level of my practice for 30 years was in the bankruptcy world. I've now been on the bankruptcy bench for six and a half years, 
Yeah, I think uh, the reason Professor Cordes uh, tapped me to do this is because the very first Arizona marijuana-related case was in my court. We can talk about that a little bit later, but uh, uh, suffice to say that my five kids now refer to me as the weed judge. <laughs> so that, I've, I've had an interest in this since that case. I've spoken on a number of occasions about the topic, and uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Outstanding. Professor Laura, please tell us about yourself. Um, so I also want to join Judge Collins in thanking you both, Herb and Amina, and it's a real pleasure to be sitting here next to Judge Collins and to have such a distinguished co-guest with me. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so I have been at ASU since 2013, and my specialty is bankruptcy law. That's my primary area of research. And I am particularly interested in debtors that have difficulty using the bankruptcy system for one way or another. Um, and so that's actually what brought me to this topic that I pitched to Amina last year. So um, before I came to ASU, I practiced bankruptcy law in New York at the firm of Weil Gottschall. And they're a large law firm. They do a lot of bankruptcy work. So it was a really good learning experience for me. And before I was at Weill, um, I went to NYU for undergrad and the University of Chicago for law school. Uh, so that's me in a nutshell. Outstanding. All right, so to launch our discussion here today, some context is in order, particularly as it relates to the Federal Controlled Substance Act and the Supremacy Clause of the US Constitution. In addition, can you please give some background on how this industry is booming and what it looks like currently? Um, and maybe just speak about it as much as you can in layman's terms so that anyone anywhere can follow along on this discussion. Sure. So uh, to take your last question first, talking about where this business is and, and how it's, how it, what it looks like currently. So it's, it is pretty booming. So I, I brought some statistics so that I could remind myself. Um, so these are from November 2018. So we're still, uh, you know, that's over six months ago now. But at that time, there were about 28,000 marijuana businesses in operation in the US. And they employed about 150,000 people and managed about $9 billion in predominantly cash revenues. So it's a pretty big business. And I did actually get a more recent number in terms of employment. So as of, I think it's last month, there were 211,000 people employed in the industry. So we're looking at almost 10,000 jobs a month being added um, to this industry. So it really is something that's booming. Uh, I don't think a week goes by without something, some, something in the paper about either a, a new state jumping into the, <laughs> into the fray with either proposed legislation or just this past week, Illinois legalized marijuana. They became the 11th state to legalize it for recreational use. Um, so it's, it's a growing business, to put it very mildly. I've heard stories about in, Cal in Colorado in particular, where it's both legal medicinally and uh, recreationally, that uh, restaurants are having a really hard time hiring people at the sort of rates that they're traditionally hiring them at because uh, they want to hire on to uh, a marijuana shop. Uh, the pay is really good. The benefits are really good. Not just what you're thinking, but medical and, and so forth. And, uh, uh, and so it's really changed the job market in Colorado. That's, that's really amazing. And I think as, the, as we see more and more states jumping onto the legalization bandwagon, I think this is only going to become more of an issue. It's, and we'll see how it affects local economies. I know that there are some, just sort of anecdotally I've heard too, um, some municipalities trying to figure out, okay, uh, how, can we, how can we sort of make use of or take advantage of the fact that there are marijuana businesses that want to join our community? You know, can we tax them, <laughs> namely? Um, or you know, just trying to figure out sort of 
trying to find some benefit to these businesses coming. Obviously, there's a job creation benefit, but are there other opportunities for revenue for the for the state or even for the city? Yeah. Normally, the market would uh, be favorable to such business growth, but clearly there are some impediments. And I think in order to uh, understand what those impediments are, why don't we first dive into the, the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Under the act, marijuana is a Schedule One drug. What is the definition of a Schedule One drug? And there, then what are the prohibitions then regarding the prohibitions regarding Schedule One drugs? So, so Schedule One drug, just to kind of put it into plain English, so Schedule One is the most restrictive category under the Controlled Substances Act. And I mean, you can obviously look up the language of the statute, but again, to kind of paraphrase and to put it in plain English, the, uh, the idea is that the federal government is essentially saying there is no valid reason that you should have this drug. No medicinal it has purpose. No medici- yeah. Right. It's a dangerous drug. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. There's no medicinal purpose. There's no sort of, um, like, I think cough syrup is maybe like, some types of cough syrup are like Schedule three or four drugs, right? Where they're saying, like, if you take this in the proper dosage, then you're going to be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. But for something like marijuana, the federal position is essentially there's no amount you know that's, that's safe. There's no uh, amount that you can use for any valid rec- recognized medical purpose. There's really just no reason you should have this, and then consequently, there's no reason that you should be making it or distributing it. And, and therefore, heroin and marijuana have the very same status under this Controlled Substance Act. Yes, that's correct. And therefore, to accentuate the point, under federal law, therefore, you cannot manufacture it, distribute it, use it, because that's against the law. That's right. It's completely illegal. Which right. leads us to... Well, and then you have to look at the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which is Article 4, Clause 2, which essentially says that uh, the laws of uh, the United States shall be supreme uh, in the land. And so, in short language, uh, uh, the... Federal law is going to trump state law. So even though it may be legal medicinally in Arizona or recreationally in, in California, Colorado, Washington, and so on, uh, federal law is still going to prevail. So let's go into that a bit more. Yeah. Uh, so the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, and you had started it off, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bind thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So, so far, like you've said, 33 states have legalized the use sale and distribution of medical marijuana, which already conflicts with the Federal Controlled Substances Act. So how are we seeing this conflict play out so far? And specifically, what are the implications of the conflict between the state laws and federal? Well, let's talk about uh, a recent Arizona Supreme Court case where they were faced with a Court of Appeals decision that said marijuana used in a distilled form of a resin that produced hashish the Court of Appeals had said, sorry, that is uh, illegal. It's a crime under even Arizona law and, uh, and is not protected by the medical marijuana statute. The Arizona Supreme Court, however, two or three weeks ago said, no, that's not true. If it's any sort of byproduct of marijuana, whether you're using it as a resin, as hashish, in gummies, in oils, or whatever, uh, the use of the marijuana plant in all those forms is not a criminal problem. And so that was for the industry to have a, a huge uh, decision in their favor because there's an awful lot of question about whether they could manufacture marijuana in all these different forms and then sell them uh, by retail under the medical marijuana statutes. 
So what I think is really interesting about all of this is that from an academic perspective, it drives you crazy because and that's, you know, the perspective of where I come from. Um, because, you know, there's this federal prohibition, there's the supremacy clause that says the federal law is the supreme law of the land. And then there are all these states kind of going in a different direction. Um, and so from an academic perspective, you're like, this should be really interesting. It should be setting up this amazing clash, right, of like, you know, the federal government should just like stamp its boot down, you know, and, and end this. And what's interesting is that in practice, that's really not what the federal government has done. The federal government, by and large, is taking a hands-off approach. What's tricky about that is that there's nothing sort of formal about the federal government's hands-off approach. So in, I think it was in 2013, under the Obama administration, we had something called the Cole Memorandum. And the Cole Memorandum basically said what I just said. Federal government, we're going to take a hands-off approach. We're not going to pursue, uh, we're not going to enforce the federal marijuana prohibition unless we think that there's a real problem at the federal level that we need to, to step in. But by and large, we're going to take a hands-off approach. Yeah, the Cole Memorandum had eight different categories. I'm not going to uh, identify each of them, but such things as if they're using med- uh, marijuana under the state laws, to traffic uh, in a cartel sense right. or, or to uh, have weapons involved or if it's going towards children. Yeah. Uh, these kinds of things were what the federal government focused on in this coal memorandum is areas that, yes, we, indeed, we will be going for that, even if it's legal under state law. Right. Other than that, pretty much hands off. Yeah. Don't, so, don't prosecute. Exactly. So by and large, first impression, don't prosecute unless it's in one of these areas where, where we think we're going to have to. But then in 2018, under the Trump administration, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole Memo. And even when the Cole Memorandum was in force, it wasn't a law. It didn't have the binding legal effect of a law. It was more, I guess, I suppose, guidance. Kind of like an in-house directive to the uh, Department of Justice employees, the prosecutors. Yeah. So even then, there's still some worry, although, you know, maybe not as much worry as there might be today, but there was still some worry that, okay, we could change direction at any moment and decide that the federal government could decide to really come down hard on these marijuana businesses and, and, and so forth. So there's something else in addition to that, though. There are a number of budgets, I, I think it started perhaps in 2014, that had an amendment called the Rohrbacher or Blumenauer Amendment that said you cannot use in the federal appropriations in the budget that's approved by Congress you cannot use money to prosecute these crimes in states where marijuana use is legal, except for the eight coal uh, type things. So here you have budgetary restraints on doing the prosecution, and you have a memorandum at the Department of Justice saying stay away from these issues. And so whether that made it into the last budget, I don't know or not, but I, I think it was uh, the case through at least the 2018 budget. That is a great point. And so it's really interesting because you would think, just from looking at the law on the books, the federal law says one thing, a bunch of state laws say something else. You'd think that there would, this, there would be this sort of big crackdown on the federal government side, and there really hasn't been. Even under the Trump administration, even after the Cole memo was rescinded, I'm fairly certain that the current Attorney General, William Barr, when he was getting confirmed before the Senate, I think he said something to the effect of, oh, I won't go after marijuana businesses. But again, none of that is binding. And so it's it's interesting because there are these little sort of, I guess, little pointers sprinkled throughout federal law that suggest the government is going to take a hands-off approach. At the same time, there's no... There's no law on the books that's saying we're repealing the Controlled Substances Act, at least as to marijuana's classification. And, of course, the consequence is that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about anyone going into this business as to their vulnerability and liability, right? Absolutely. Very very true. And Congress is taking a hands-off approach while all of this is being adjudicated? 
what I mean? Not entirely. Talk about the banking side of things, if you would. Yeah. Well, so there are a couple of initiatives in Congress uh, to address these issues on, I guess, a, a more comprehensive scale. So there's been some legislation floating around Congress. I think two pieces of legislation that I've been aware of, the States Act and then the Safe Banking Act. And so both of these pieces of legislation are designed to sort of acknowledge what the states are doing. So the the States Act essentially is saying, okay, it's almost a little bit like the Cole Memorandum. Like as long as these states, uh, as long as these businesses are compliant with state law and and are compliant with a few basic sort of federal minimum (laughs) requirements, uh, we're going to let the state law prevail. We're going to take, you know, we're going to take a hands-off approach. We're not going to, to prosecute marijuana cases, essentially. And then the Safe Banking Act, um, because as we'll talk about, banks that are that serve marijuana businesses run the risk of being pursued for money laundering, among other crimes. Um, the Safe Banking Act is sort of designed to, to provide a safe harbor for banks that comply with certain standards and um, do, do business in states that have legalized marijuana. So one of the things that in the criminal context at uh, the federal level that uh, we have seen over the years, of course, is that if there is a federal crime committed and certain properties involved in that crime, uh, the federal government has tools of seizure. And so if somebody is involved in the banking world and they're taking marijuana proceeds, uh, running the risk of uh, perhaps aiding and abetting uh, an illegal enterprise and then having the seizure powers uh, by the United States, suddenly the bank accounts are seized. Something that's pretty frightful for banks. So yeah, so banks. Are, I mean, banks are running the risk too that in in engaging in business with these pot businesses that they're going to be subject to you know some trouble from the federal government. And so there's, as I mentioned, there's these two acts that are sort of floating around Congress. But um, as far as I know, they haven't really. I mean, they're not close to becoming law. So. Not a, not a real. Well, I, I think on the on the at least on the House bill that's pending right now, there's a House and a Senate bill on that's the safe uh, yes. banking side. There was something like 160 people signed on to the House bill and dozens of people on the Senate bill. I think there's a really good chance that wow. that banking bill will pass. That's true. That's actually a good point. And I think that the House has actually made efforts to move it through the various committees. They've held hearings. And so I think that that's a good point that the at least the Safe Banking Act may have a better chance of passage. Although I just I never get into the minds of Congress, you know. So there are there are two banks in Arizona that I've been told are actually accepting deposits. One has been doing it for about uh, six years, and that bank is uh, First Fidelity Bank. They're based out of Oklahoma, and they have six operations or six outlets here in the state of Arizona. They've been very quietly engaged in it. They're not advertising it. Uh, they, uh, in fact, uh, according to them, they very very closely uh, scrutinize and vet uh, whoever it is that they're going to be signing on as a depositor. They have a $500 application fee that you're going to pay, and for each bank account that is opened that is tied to a marijuana business, it's going to be $1,000 in the bank account per month. So you can see where it could be a pretty lucrative operation. Apparently, the other banks uh, of fee for uh, the monthly charge is $5,000 a month. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, First Fidelity has about 75% of the market in Arizona, and it's a very important thing for these businesses involved in so much cash. Uh, that they want a place to bank it. Uh, And the state, of course, would like to see records uh, and banking uh, uh, trail of where the money is going. And so the banking component is something that's really been largely lacking and been a very big question mark for a lot of these different states. It seems like it's starting to break through the ice a little bit now. And if this banking law passes, uh, apparently that will open the door even wider. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that is... uh that's probably needed because 
you know, not only is banking in, or conducting your business in cash, you know, pretty inefficient. Um, I've also heard just anecdotally about safety issues, you know, employees basically having, having to go pay the state taxes in person, um, carrying large sums of money on their person. And some businesses are hiring essentially bodyguards to escort their employees because, you know, you don't want to be caught carrying large sums of money in cash. And of course, the taxing authorities would like to get a hold of that cash via taxing uh, uh, bills. And so uh, if they can trail the, the money and see where it's being deposited and how the banking operations are going, then uh, they've got a better window into uh, what their, their tax bills go to. Absolutely. So we've got a good idea of where things may be heading. So as of now, how does the conflict between state and federal law manifest itself in the context of banking and the exposure of creditors? Well, like I said, as of now, we are in a strange place, like, like we are with, it seems like, just about everything in this topic. So, I mean, there's, you know, again, these businesses that are operating predominantly in cash, um, we, have, we have, I think, a lot of concerns with that. We have concerns, and maybe this goes a little bit more to the bankruptcy side of things, but, um, you know, Creditors that might be interested in lending money to these businesses for whatever reason, they sh- they should know, or they 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 will know if they don't now that these businesses can't file for bankruptcy relief, and so that that can influence, I guess, their their willingness to lend um, or the terms on which they lend if they know that they're, you know, these businesses essentially, t- if they experience financial distress, they may not be able to find relief through the bankruptcy courts. Well. Think of this. I mean, one of the the hallmarks of a really robust economy, a a very successful economy, uh, is where people involved and businesses involved in transactions actually have recourse to courts who are going to fairly uh, handle whatever the disputes might be. And if in the federal courts you're involved in, in, let's say, bankruptcy in particular, a court of equity, if you're coming in here to the bankruptcy court saying, I'm involved in a legal enterprise, please help me, uh, there's the, the maximum of, uh, of you know, come to, to equity and do equity. And if you come with uh, unclean hands, uh, courts will often uh, bounce your case. And that is, in a nutshell, essentially what's been going on in the bankruptcy world. But, you know, when you have an economy that is uh, in shambles in, in some other country, go ahead and pick which one you want, uh, if they have a very unreliable judiciary, you know, the people aren't going to have recourse. They're not going to feel so good about uh, having... Uh, investment and in some cases very large investment uh, made. So this this is probably a good segue into the stock market because of course mm-hmm. that's how money is really raised in in, uh, in a very big sense uh, uh, in the U.S. economy. But is that possible to have a publicly traded marijuana based operation in the U.S.? Not in the U.S. No, the major exchanges they won't list the companies um, because again marijuana is illegal at the federal level. We were talking about this just before we, I guess, went on the air, so to speak, but there is um, the Canadian exchanges will list companies uh, because pot is legal uh, all throughout Canada. And so there is the possibility of listing with the Canadian exchange, but not, there's no, I, I don't believe there's any real ability to list with, a, not with a major U.S. exchange. There I may mean, be a, like a, a few smaller exchanges. I, I've been told the all the big players, the big financial players in the marijuana space are uh, publicly traded in Canada. Um, and while some, I'm sure, are, are going to try to break that ice in, in the U.S., of course, securities regulations are the Securities and Exchange Commission, a federal entity. They're not going to allow that at this point, and uh, so there's a real bar to that right now. So in the sense of trying to raise capital for this, it's kind of a hit and miss, and uh, 
and probably a very expensive proposition. Yeah, it just seems like, so even though, you know, looking at it from almost like from the criminal side of things, right, it looks like, okay, the, the federal government is taking this sort of hands-off approach to enforcing the Controlled Substances Act when it comes to marijuana. But when you look at the business side of things and look at raising capital or getting access to courts when you're in financial distress, uh, these businesses keep hitting roadblock after roadblock because so many, so much of of what needs to happen uh, is has to happen essentially at the federal level. You know, it's a federal bankruptcy court, it's the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission, and so on. So at least in Arizona, it does not strike me that this is a mom-and-pop kind of business. You've got to be pretty sophisticated, both to, to be able to jump the, the legal hurdles, uh, to raise the capital, which is pretty expensive. Uh, you need to be a pretty significant player. Uh, and on top of it, as, as I'm understanding it, you have to have $150,000 ready cash before the certificate can even be issued to you uh, in Arizona. Other states, I've been told, like Oklahoma, this banker told me today that uh, all you need is $2,500 and an application filled out, and and just about anybody can uh, run a shop there. So that's a much more mom-and-pop thing. And as you might guess, there's a much, much, much greater and crazy kind of Wild West demand for banking services in Oklahoma. And uh, in some ways, they've been the beneficiary of exactly that. Wow. Maybe you could go through some bankruptcy terms for people so chapter 7 and 13 come up in this context if you wanted to go over that very briefly and how that all fits in and while we're while we're talking about terms and different entities even the US trustees office how that all fits in maybe just hitting those terms before we go deeper. Okay. so now we're getting into the territory that we really love <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and which may put you asleep but uh, uh, in bankruptcy, there are a number of different chapters. Everybody's heard of Chapter 11. When American Airlines filed bankruptcy, Chapter 11. When Lehman Brothers filed uh, bankruptcy, Chapter 11. That's a reorganization bankruptcy. Um, and the idea is to restructure your debt and emerge out because at the end of the day, this is a company that still has value uh, and uh, they just need to be restructured financially. Um, although sometimes you can have a liquidation in Chapter 11. That's true. Um, chapter 13s are kind of a variety of that in that you're going to have a plan of three to five years for an individual. It can't be a company. It has to be an individual. Uh, and they have to have debts of a certain maximum amount. So it's basically small wage earners who just need to restructure their own finances. And there's reasons why you would do a 13 versus some other chapter. But a chapter 13 will have a trustee appointed. A chapter 11 will not automatically have a trustee appointed. The Department of Justice has a branch called the United States Trustees Office. They are the ones who, uh, who are going to appoint trustees to these Chapter 13 cases. Um, and if it turns out that the Chapter 11 needs a trustee for lots of different reasons, that trustee can be appointed, again, by the, the Department of Justice branch, the U.S. Trustees Office. There's also Chapter 7 that you mentioned, Amina, and uh, Chapter 7 is just a liquidation. Companies or individuals, they can file a liquidation. I give up, here's my money, uh, here's my property, here's my debts, pay what you can, but just discharge my obligations. Let me out of here and let me start over again. That's essentially what Chapter 7 is. So to focus on how this ties to all the marijuana issues, think about being a, uh, a panel Chapter 13 trustee or a Chapter 7 trustee, and your job now is to collect all of the money that comes in from the sale of a marijuana business that your debtor in bankruptcy is running. Uh, how good do you feel about handling that money? How good do you feel about liquidating these assets to reduce it to money um, when you know that there's a federal statute out there that says doing so is illegal? And on top of that, your assets could be seized. So there's been a directive from the United States Trustee's Office 
Uh, this is a, a letter that came out to all trustees probably a couple of years ago that essentially said, uh, object to marijuana uh, cases. If you see a debtor that's involved uh, themselves in, in the marijuana uh, industry, whether they're a landlord, whether they're a manufacturer, or whether they're a retailer, whatever it is, don't let it happen, object, and, and uh, do it noisily so that uh, the court will know that this is a case that should be dismissed. So we've seen some of that sort of activity in bankruptcy court uh, on a number of occasions. We can talk about those details later. Yeah, I would just add that I think that the U.S. trustee's position, um, you know, again, from the, the main office, is, is sort of the idea that you can't use bankruptcy court to, uh, you can't use a federal court to um, like continue on in the commission of a federal crime, essentially. So you can't come to the bankruptcy court and say, hey, I really need help reorganizing my business that's actually illegal under federal law. <laughs> and so uh, I think the trustee, the U.S. trustee, they, they draw a pretty firm line and they say you can't do that. And then I think part of the reason that they will go after, they'll also object in the case of, say, someone who maybe isn't a dispensary, right? Maybe they're not selling marijuana, but maybe they're they're leasing the space where the dispensary is located, right? Well, that person will say, I'm a landlord. I'm in the business of real estate. I'm not in the pot business. Um, but, you know, the idea is your one of your tenants is involved in the commission of a federal crime. And again, uh, the U.S. trustee's position is essentially the Controlled Substances Act doesn't distinguish between the, the business itself, the grower, the manufacturer, um, and any sort of downstream participants. Um, so as long as you have that link, we're, the U.S. trustee's position, I believe, is we're going to object and say this case doesn't belong in bankruptcy court. In fact, there was just this year, a 2019 U.S. Supreme Court case in a different context. The case was called Technology. And one of the things uh, that uh, they cited was 28 U.S.C. Section 959B, which says a bankruptcy trustee who is managing the bankruptcy estate has an obligation to do so within the confines of the law. And so uh, while that wasn't a marijuana case, I mean, it's absolutely true that trustees need to obey the law in, in, in the uh, discharging of their own duties. I'm glad you cited that because one of the questions that occurred to me was, are there any recent cases or cases that are currently being adjudicated whose findings may be of interest to our listeners but, but are testing the boundaries of the issues that, that we're discussing? Oh, yes, every day. <laughs> Perhaps you could share a couple that uh, might be so relevant. And they come up in a lot of different contexts. I mean, think about it. Uh, it's the person who owns the grow shop and is retailing the product, that's what you would ordinarily think. But the, the first case I ever saw was the certificate holder to, to uh, do medicinal marijuana it has to be a nonprofit under Arizona law. And so that group uh, entered into an agreement with a for-profit entity, and that for-profit entity attracted a bunch of capital, uh, investors that came in at the outset, and what the for-profit entity was doing was providing management uh, skills and, manage and and equipment and all sorts of services to the, uh, to the certificate holder. In other words, moving all the cash out of the nonprofit into the for-profit. And just before the bankruptcy was filed, the people that held the for-profit were saying, wow, there's so much money coming into this thing. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to pay our investors? So they created a brand new entity that entered into a new agreement with the uh, nonprofit. And, of course, the creditors who had been involved in the first entity, the for-profit entity, are screaming, that's a fraudulent transfer. And, uh, and so they threw them into an involuntary bankruptcy. 
So bankruptcies can be filed either voluntarily by the petitioner or creditors can get together and petition to have it involuntarily placed into bankruptcy. So I had an involuntary case and it was an ironic outset uh, argument where the debtor's lawyer is arguing, I can't be here in this bankruptcy because what we do is illegal. And I had an interesting discussion with the record or on the record with the lawyer saying, well, how did you get paid? Well, I got paid from the business. And so you're getting your fees from illegal activity as well. If you talk to the bar <laughs> and so on. And so we had an interesting discussion there. Bottom line was though, uh, I concluded like, a, like most other courts are concluding that uh, you can't be in bankruptcy running a legal enterprise and uh, under the federal law, this is an illegal enterprise. And so the case was dismissed. Now that's not the end of the story because maybe you can talk a little bit about what's going on on the state side where it is legal in Arizona and now the state courts are getting these cases in receiverships. That's true. So yeah, so one of the, one of the I guess, issues is if we can't, if you're a marijuana business and you can't access federal court, what do you do? What is, you know, what's your alternative if you're in financial distress? Um, well, one alternative that seemed to have popped up, at least at, uh, to a good extent in Arizona, is receiverships. Uh, so basically, uh, the state court will appoint a receiver to manage the assets. And we don't necessarily run into the same problem with federal law because this is all happening at the state level. Um, so, you know, if it's... if Again, if the business is in Arizona, right, um, if we, we have a law that says you can use marijuana um, for medical purposes, um, marijuana now defined very broadly thanks to the Jones case that we talked about earlier. Um, and so if you are having difficulty, if you're, having financial, if you're experiencing financial distress and you maybe need to, you know, <laughs> you, you need some assistance but you can't get into bankruptcy court, you'll, you'll, you'll opt for maybe the state court receivership option. Um, and I'm pretty sure that receiverships have become, I, at least in Arizona, I, I, I believe they're pretty big businesses, yeah, uh, pretty big business. And I think there are players that are always the people running those. Right. Shows. I was just going to say there seem to be, uh, you know, sort of the, the the major players that that do these receiverships that become the receivers and so forth are are becoming well established. So there's this really interesting non-federal court alternative uh, that these businesses can can use, um, given that they are being seemingly thrown out of bankruptcy court on a regular basis. So let me give you some other examples of the way these cases have come up in Arizona. Um, I had an individual who was a licensed caregiver and uh, had a certificate to be able to provide uh, every two weeks, I think two and a half grams of medicinal marijuana to their, uh, their charges, their, their uh, patients. Uh, interestingly, in, in that case, well, first of all, predictably, the U.S. Trustee's Office comes in and says, this case needs to immediately be dismissed, this Chapter 13 bankruptcy, because we can't let our trustee uh, deal with the, the sort of money that's coming in from his uh, marijuana operations. And the reason he filed the bankruptcy in the first place is because he owned two homes, one of which was a home that uh, his ex was about to, to take, uh, and so he filed a bankruptcy to stop that process. That home was used exclusively for growing marijuana and way more than two and a half grams per week. Uh, and what he was doing was taking the excess marijuana into um, retail um, marijuana operations and saying, I will give you, I will donate this marijuana to you. Uh, now I'd like to be a consultant. And they would pay him a consultant fee of about $5,000 a month. That's how he was going to fund his Chapter 13 bankruptcy plan. A, he was violating Arizona law. Uh, uh, it obviously wasn't a donation. It was a uh, pot for, um, uh, for a cash arrangement. Uh, he eventually ended up uh, getting arrested. Uh, the bankruptcy was dismissed, and the U.S. trustee prevailed on that one. 
So that's just an individual on a much more smaller scale that you can see how that happened. Yeah. I do think, though, I mean, I don't, I haven't obviously polled every every judge, every federal judge on this issue, but I, I, I get the sense, I get some sense that maybe not, so it, I think it's pretty clear if you're a dispensary, for example, you're barred from bankruptcy, you're committing a crime, and you can't use the court to facilitate ongoing commission of a crime. But I do get the sense that for people that are some of these more downstream participants, like landlords or um, people who have some, who derive some income from marijuana, I get the sense that there is, you know, there there is maybe some, uh, I don't know, desire to try and assist those individuals or get them bankruptcy relief. I think that's true, but it reminds me of my discussion with the banker today, where they actually have three different categories. Uh, tier one category of a potential customer is the people or the business that touches the marijuana. They grow it, they transport it, they sell it, they, they are the marijuana shops. Tier two is greater than 50% of the revenues coming from the marijuana business. So they might be the landlord, they might be the, uh, the cleaning company, they might be the laundry company, whatever, providing services to the marijuana shops. And then tier three is anybody who's still getting revenue off of the, uh, the marijuana business, but it's less than 50% of their business. And that's kind of perhaps a way that uh, uh, you're, you're looking at it as well. Those yeah. who are, are more tangentially involved perhaps are a little more sympathetic uh, uh, in the federal courts or, or elsewhere. Right. I think that, yeah, I think that maybe that's, that, that's the case or at least maybe that's where we are. I don't know. I don't know if that's where we're going, but it, it makes me think of the, um, it actually makes me think of the, the Garvin versus Cook Investments case that just Talk happened. Talk about that a little bit because that's, that's gotten a lot of buzz. So. Yeah. So this case, um, it just came down oh, like maybe a month ago from the Ninth Circuit. So basically the debtor was, they, the debtor owned a bunch of real estate holding companies and um, it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, so reorganization bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court ultimately confirmed the reorganization plan, but the U.S. trustee had objected and said, you can't confirm this plan because one of the, uh, the tenants on one of the properties was a company called Greenhaven, which grew marijuana. And so, again, you know, U.S. trustees taking this position that, okay, yeah, you're a landlord, essentially, you're a property management company, but, you know, the CSA doesn't distinguish between you and, and the pot grower, so neither should we. So the, the U.S. trustee had essentially said, there's no way that they can propose the plan in good faith, or um, specifically, so, so, so the, the, the bankruptcy code provides, and this is section 1129A3 of the code for those of you who want to look it up, but the bankruptcy code provides you have to propose a plan in good faith and not by any means forbidden by law. And so the trustee is saying, well, you're proposing a plan that, you know, that involves something illegal, right? So you can't, you can't do this. And this case goes all the way up to the Ninth Circuit. The U.S. trustee is appealing the case. And the court, the Ninth Circuit takes a really interesting look at 1129A3. And it says, you, U.S. trustee, you're looking at this in terms of the substance of the plan. You're saying the substance of the plan is tainted because it's, it, it contemplates something illegal. It contemplates illegal income, income from an illegal source. Yeah. But 1129A3 says, is talking about sort of the way the plan is proposed. The plan has to be proposed in good faith and not by any means forbidden by law. So if we, if we take away the substance of the plan and we just look at how it was proposed, 
Well, there wasn't anything wrong with how the debtor proposed the plan. There wasn't anything sort of procedurally amiss or procedurally illegal. And the proposal itself wasn't forbidden by law. Exactly. The proposal itself wasn't for for forbidden by law. You're supposed to propose a plan. You're in Chapter 11. You know? And so the Ninth Circuit kind of took this view that said, no, we can't confirm this plan because there's nothing sort of standing, like 1129A3 doesn't stand in the way because it, it doesn't speak to the substance of the plan itself. It speaks to how it was proposed. Um, and that's... I mean, that's an, uh, a literal, I suppose, read of the statute. I don't know that every court is going to agree with that. But again, I think there is some sense, and I'm not speaking for the judges or anything, but you know, I think that goes to my point that maybe there's some sense that we want to find a way out for these downstream players, these, these landlords, for example. Well, there's another case that's uh, called the Olson case. It comes from the United Circuit of BAP, where uh, Essentially, the judge in Nevada, when he hears the word marijuana in connection with the, the debtor's bankruptcy, dismissed the case. Didn't take findings, didn't uh, you know, have a trial, didn't uh, do much of anything other than saying, you're involved in marijuana, we can't do that. Um, and so the BAP reversed him saying, now you need to take facts and you need to make findings, essentially encouraging the judge to make criminal-type findings. And when you've made those criminal findings, and of course bankruptcy judges are not in the business of doing criminal work, <laughs> We see criminals sometimes, but uh, we, we're not in the business of uh, judging criminal activity, but essentially challenging the judge to make such findings and then desert, determine whether this case really ought to be dismissed on bad faith grounds. So, you know, it's, it's working around trying to find whether it seems ironic to even think about are there legitimate solutions available given the, the dilemmas that you've described as to how marijuana enterprises can function as viable businesses. Um, you know, because in some ways, capitalism is at work here, isn't it? There's job creation. There's wealth creation. There's the added value of tax receipts that go to support education in some states. There's a value added to the growth of this business that at some point, the law may say, or, or Congress or legislatures may say, let this be. Well, I hear what you're saying, and yet uh, there's another side of the coin as well. There's an awful lot of medical-related issues uh, that the physicians would tell you uh, uh, would suggest that this shouldn't be legal. Um, and there is, uh, you know, activity that occurs when uh, when people have been using marijuana and uh, hurting others. Uh, so it's not just a uh, self-imposed uh, um, thing. So there really are two sides of the equation, of course. There are. Do you, but do either of you see that there's a light at the end of this cave? There is so much money in this space. That's what I'm asking. So much lobbying effort going on. I mean, it's, it it's is, a treasure cove. That's gigantic. the light. It is gigantic. Well, that's why money, I speak the about the money. The, money. But that's why I speak about the fact that this is creating jobs. It's creating wealth. It's creating tax revenues that some states see as great opportunities to finance things like education. Banks want to be a part of the action. Hedge funds want to be a part of the action. Uh, you know, people in the capital markets want to be a part of this whole thing because there is an incredible amount of money uh, at stake here. Yeah. I mean, it's of course, it's very complicated. And I don't, I mean, to wrap your head around all of the possible issues with marijuana, being legal for recreational, medicinal use, or otherwise is, you know, it's astounding. And I'm not saying that I have my head fully wrapped around it either. But I, you know, in terms of thinking about, I don't know, a light at the end of the tunnel, what I would say is that this is an issue that I think is only going to grow. 
right? Because we seem to be moving in the direction. We already have 33 states that legalize marijuana for medical purposes. We have 11 states that legalize it for recreational purposes. We have, you know, jobs that are being created. We have businesses that need things, right? As you become a functioning business, you need you, you need things. You need to advertise. You may need a lawyer to, you know, to help you. And so there are more and more people who, even if your business, your prime business isn't marijuana, right, you are going to be roped into this in some way. And so it's going to affect a growing number of people. Um, and so that, I think, you know, I guess, I don't know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it, it seems to me that it's just going to snowball until, I think, as you said, Herb, the government might just say, well, something has to be done. So let's wax philosophical just for a moment then, <laughs> because when we first started talking about this, I think there was an inclination, and maybe, Laura, you were the one to frame it this way, that this is a federalism issue. And in a political environment where there's a great deal of discussion about what the appropriate role of government is or and what the appropriate role of the federal government is as related to state government, you, you wonder if there is a common ground to be defined in terms of how far states can go. And this would certainly appeal to a significant part of the political spectrum, viewing states as the laboratories of democracy Somehow that's got to happen before the system breaks down or the federal government does, in fact, intervene. What's your take on that? I think it's political because uh, while the Obama administration had a completely different uh, tack uh, on this issue, essentially saying let the states be the states and uh, we'll stay away from it unless there are really serious problems uh, with what's going on, um, you know, the Trump administration is a different administration. Uh, and yet they're not even tackling this very hard because uh, they can see the, the wave. And I think it's fairly obvious that uh, in the not-too-distant future, all 50 states are going to have some form of uh, legalized marijuana. These people are voting. Uh, I saw a stat, and I'm going to misquote it, but it's something like in, in uh, 1995, uh, only 20% of the, the citizenry uh, thought it was uh, uh, appropriate to have legalized marijuana. Now it's something more like 65%. Yeah. These are people who are voting. Attitudes are changing. Generations not, are changing. Not just college kids. Right. You had referenced Canada before, and it occurred to me that in a global marketplace, in a global environment, is there any aspect of international law or the actions of other countries that in some ways impacts on America, United States behavior? Legally or otherwise? Um, well, I almost wonder, you know, because it's Canada, so to take that example, because Canada has legalized marijuana sort of across the board. Um, I mean, they are our neighbors to the north, and we have quite a long border with them. So, I mean, there's, I suppose there are sort of economic impacts setting up right across the border, you know, uh, for example, a dispensary, you know, may be more attractive to set up on the Canadian side. But other side. countries have legalized marijuana, have dealt with similar issues and legalized it in Europe, for example. Well, Amsterdam, I think, is a real yeah. haven for hashish and marijuana. Yeah. Um, they seem to have, uh, have managed it for years. How so? I don't know. Yeah. I'm guessing Jamaica has, has done something <laughs> along the way. Um, but really, I, I have no idea how it's working and, and whether it's effective. Yeah. Are there other cases or areas of adjudication that we haven't covered that relate to bankrupt banking, bankruptcy, uh, tenant landlord relationships, uh, the other aspects of the business side of? Well, marijuana? so here's a case that one of our judges, Judge Martin, had, and that was that a a debtor in a Chapter 11 reorganization had proposed a plan where some component of one of their 
assets was a marijuana-related asset. So let's say they're a limited partner or a, an LLC member, and they've invested in this thing, and it's spinning cash off, and they're using some of that cash for the plan. So it is not the entirety of what's going on in the case, but it's an element of it. Um, in some cases, uh, uh, you might say, well, just get rid of that asset. Well, in bankruptcy, you literally can get rid of assets. They would be abandoned, but they get abandoned back to the debtor the party that's in bankruptcy. So that's, that doesn't really work. And Judge, uh, Judge Winery in a different case pointed that out. So one of the things that could happen is, uh, I guess you could, before the bankruptcy is filed, sell off that asset, transfer it to a third party, go into the bankruptcy without the, the pot asset and still do your reorganization or still do your Chapter 7. Um, in other words, there ought to be some advanced planning before you actually take this on. But I think most judges are not going to really help you out in the disposition of that, saying that, well, when you dispose of it, now that cash belongs to the bankruptcy estate, and it's still like the marijuana product itself. It's it's a problem. Yeah. But I think to the extent, I mean, if it's possible to engage in pre-bankruptcy planning and spin off that portion of your business, if it is a portion of what you're doing or a portion of your income, then I think that if you know if you can do that before you enter bankruptcy, if you have the foresight and planning to do that, I think that actually helps you because again, I think the U.S. trustee has distinguished what's going on with these marijuana cases from cases like uh, Enron or like the Madoff cases with right. the Ponzi schemes, right? Because they're saying at that at the point that Enron goes into bankruptcy, Enron or or, or you know Madoff's companies, they are no longer engaged in their fraudulent or their criminal schemes. Those schemes are in the past. And so all we're doing is dealing with the fallout. We can deal with the fallout because we're not aiding and abetting sort of an ongoing criminal scheme. And so I think there's something to be said potentially for, you know, if, if marijuana income is just a portion of what you're dealing with to the extent that you can get rid of it before you come into bankruptcy, that is a potential way to use the bankruptcy system to achieve whatever result you'd like without without being kicked out, essentially. But the, the Madoff case is a good example of exactly why it would be a problem to continue with your legal activity post-bankruptcy. I mean, Madoff, what he was doing was a Ponzi scheme, and it was illegal. And if he came into bankruptcy voluntarily filing because creditors are coming after him because there's been a collapse in the Ponzi scheme, but he's still trying to take on new post-bankruptcy uh, 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 investors in his scheme, well, of course the court would shut that down. And how is that really that much different uh, if you've got a marijuana business that is illegal under federal law? Exactly. That's the reasoning. Exactly. So this may be beyond the pale uh, of, of the kinds of uh, things that we ought to be talking about. But if if I am an entrepreneurial type, oh, wait, and wait I a see... second. Wait a second. I've got to tell you about this. Go. There's a special term for that. Yes. And I read about this in National Geographic. They had an issue devoted to marijuana. They're not just called entrepreneurs. They're called entrepreneurs. What? <laughs> True. So if I choose, if I am of that ilk, and I want, and I see the business opportunity, and I've been able to generate the capital to open up either a medical dispensary, or uh, I see these new centers uh, with herbal, uh, hemp-related products, what protections should I take in order, what, what should I do to protect myself against all of these liabilities that we've discussed. It's probably on the appeal of asking two lawyers to give advice to the entrepreneur, but nevertheless, it seems like a fair side of the equation to talk about it. Well, I don't want to give legal advice. No, I, 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 <laughs> so, so wait, before you two delve in, I will, I will have a little disclaimer. 
Laura and Judge Collins are not giving legal advice on right. this episode. We are just discussing a topic, and right. that is I'm it. Kind of brainstorming. And I'm not even giving advisory opinions for those who want to come to exactly. my court. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. None of that is happening. That's so. why I thought it might be beyond the pale of our <laughs> so, so there's my disclaimer. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, without giving, without giving legal advice, which I'm not doing, um, I mean, I think, I think knowing, well, so one of the things that's really struck me is the differences, right? So, so because we don't have a federal law that says, okay, we're going to make marijuana illegal and here are the, or we're going to make marijuana legal and here are the circumstances under which we're going to do it, you have immense variation within the 50 states. Um, I mean, I haven't looked at all the 50 states' laws, right? But I mean, sometimes you have, uh, you know, we, we have different requirements in Arizona than, for example, Colorado or Illinois. So I think, you know, the one thing that you want to do, I would assume, is is to know the state's laws, where know where you are, um, because it's going to be different. You can't necessarily rely on, if you're in Arizona, what your friend in Colorado has done, um, because you may have to set yourself up differently. And so I think just knowing the legal landscape, obviously, is something that you should do and be smart about. Um, but then I also think that there's, um, and, and I guess going along with that, right, there are some states where you can get banking services, for example. So that might be more attractive, right, than um, setting up in a state where, you know, maybe there isn't a good banking, a big banking presence in your state or it's not, you know, it's not well established. And then I think as well, you know, nobody likes to plan for bankruptcy. I think that's probably just a general maxim, like no company's like, let me map out what's going to happen when we go down, you know, but um, I wish more people would, but they don't. Um, but I also think knowing your options, right? Knowing, for example, that you're probably going to get kicked out of bankruptcy court. Um, do you have, is there a robust receivership system that you can tap into if you experience financial distress? Are there alternatives that are available to you? Or if you're the creditor and need to chase somebody into it. Exactly. What, what Where can you go and what can you do? And so I think, I mean, I, I think... My non-advice is is, is is what I tell my students all the time, right? Like, you need to know the lay of the land, right? And, and that's just, com I mean, it's almost like common sense. And that's probably true for any business, whether you're engaging in something illegal at the federal level or not. Um, but like I think, any business, you don't have to figure it out yourself. You go to the experts. Exactly. And there absolutely are experts uh, in our community who who specialize in litigation, in transactions, in financing, in the banking uh, all of these different things, both in the legal sense, uh, that is lawyers, uh, as well as business people who are attracting capital into the space and fully understand what the risks and, and rewards are. So where do you see this going? You know, like you said, there are receiverships in place, and that's the federal court alternative as of now. And then there's also the bill that's going through and might be successful and might be a reality. So where do you see this all heading with all of these things coming in? full circle. There's just too much money and too much public acceptance of marijuana these days to uh, to turn uh, a blind eye to it in Congress. There are going to be banking changes. There are probably going to be criminal uh, changes uh, at the federal level. Um, there may very well be bankruptcy-related changes as well, but uh, uh, it, it's going to have to change uh, because there's, I think, a popular demand for that change. Are any of these cases going to the Supreme Court? Not yet. The highest we've seen in any jurisdiction is this Ninth Circuit case wow. that uh, Professor Corbett's talked about, and that just happened. And, and that really wouldn't be a good case to appeal further because there were some things about that case that could have been done differently and next time around would be done differently. I, I don't really see that uh, Garvin and, and Cook Investments case as being terribly helpful to the marijuana industry, either on the creditor side or the debtor side. 
um, the way it all came down uh, could clearly be avoided next time around. Uh, and you're probably going to be looking at trying to get that case dismissed early on and talking about the gross mismanagement uh, and, and uh, other bases for cause. There's always a reason uh, in a bankruptcy to dismiss a case. Any cause uh, is what uh, each chapter describes as uh, the basis for dismissing a case. Yeah, I think the the U.S. trustee in that particular case had waived, essentially waived some of its uh, the maybe stronger arguments. <laughs> arguments. And so I don't even think, you know, this isn't the last we're going to see of this type of issue even in the not Ninth all. Circuit. Um, not it's all. not like the Ninth Circuit settled anything major. <laughs> it's just that they happened to be in a like, procedural position where, where this was the only question left remaining. But I think that it would be unusual for that procedural position to arise again. One of the reasons the, the Ninth Circuit BAP, uh, that's a bankruptcy appellate panel, was uh, uh, was really challenging the Nevada bankruptcy judge to go back and, and uh, make some findings in the case is because the woman who filed the bankruptcy <clears throat> apparently was in her 90s, was essentially blind, and it was her son that put her investment into the marijuana uh, issue, and now she's in a bankruptcy where they're going to kick her out of the bankruptcy because of something she didn't even know about her or get involved in. So. There, there's a, a million different permutations that occur in this space, and there's, I think, an appetite to try to find remedies for people who truly deserve them. So as we reach an end to this episode, unless you have just a follow-up. Yeah, yeah, just go ahead. actually one, uh, because at the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned that our next uh, podcast would focus on the criminalization and health issues related to marijuana. I thought it might be an opportune to see if there's a segue that you can provide for us that between the issues that we've discussed today on the business side uh, and what we're going to be talking about next. Is there a, a bridge that you, you might suggest? Well, maybe this isn't a, a bridge that you've got in mind, but let's take the uh, sort of full-on gambling uh, that is uh, now uh, occurring in, in uh, all, all around the state, particularly on Indian reservations. You know, gamblers can be addicted. Gamblers can run up debts and, and really uh, ruin their families. Gamblers end up in bankruptcy court. Uh, we see this, and we see what that legislation has done. We see what uh, the, the gaming industry has done to an awful lot of families. And uh, uh, they come to our courts in, in a mess, and they're, they're trying to beat that addiction. There are health issues that are, are uh, tied to marijuana use. Uh, and just getting tax revenue off it isn't uh, the end of the story. The state is going to have repercussions uh, in the, uh, the county hospital, the, uh, uh, in Medicare, in access, and so on. There's going to be a downside, and somebody really needs to be thinking about it uh, because it's not just a tax revenue gainer. There's a negative to this as well. Absolutely. And I think it's just, you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is, you know, legalizing marijuana for individuals, right? And so... And, and these businesses are being created, you know, to serve individuals. And so it's, it, I think it's just sort of a cycle because as you, it, it, there, there's the potential for individual health problems and, and other problems. Um, and those, that, those issues in turn can affect the larger community, which can affect businesses. It, so it's just sort of, it's a cycle. Well, think about prohibition. We saw how, <laughs> we saw how well that worked. Uh, once once uh, a widespread liquor use is out there, you can't just stop it. And once uh, you legalize marijuana everywhere, you're never going to stop it. Now you're going to have to deal with repercussions. It would be nice to know what all those repercussions really are, medically, financially, and so forth. Before It's you all interconnected and very complex. That's it is, right. and fascinating. So before we end this episode, you had mentioned, Judge Collins, that you heard one of the first marijuana cases in Arizona. Right. If you could just, you know, in the episode, just 
diving into that a little bit because that intrigued me. And I think that's so cool that that was an opportunity that you had. And now you're here today discussing marijuana and bankruptcy. And it's just like anything. Once uh, you get something out of the blue and lands on your lap and you dive into it, uh, you become an expert at some point. Not that I'm an expert, but you become fascinated perhaps. Uh, some years ago, a lawyer friend of mine um, had a client that walked in the door and they had tainted uh, blood and they had AIDS as a result of it. The rest of his career was dealing with AIDS litigation in the blood products in particular. So you never know where that opportunity is wow. going to be. And so if you're a young lawyer listening to this podcast, there is opportunity out there. You can become an expert. There are some experts that I've talked to in the legal profession who have, they are so busy around the clock and it's getting uh, busier. This is not a, a business that's going away. There is more and more money attracted into it. And uh, I find it fascinating because I'm interested in the financial world uh, and also how it interplays with the bankruptcy. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that does. You, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much to the both of you and Rafaela, who's sitting here today. There was a lot of work put into this. So we really appreciate your time and dedication on this episode and the 15-page document uh, so basically, this 15-page document that Judge Collins, Laura, and Rafaela have prepared and, prepared and provided to us for this episode will be featured on our website, likely under Rafaela's biography. Nice. Uh, so I'm trying to work her to uh, to get her law review note this next year on that very topic, and so maybe we could read her in uh, Hardbound someday as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I look forward to it. A lot of what was written can definitely be used as well. I mean, I, we were we read the 15 pages and we're, we were so impressed. This could definitely very well be a CLE as well, so definitely go. think we'll about that. We'll take it on the road, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> so further information on this episode is available on our website at www.legaleasepodcast.com. You will also be able to find the 15-page written overview on this topic, and you can find the link to this document under Rafaela's biography once it's up. So thank you all once again for being here today, and thank you for listening and tuning in to Legal Ease Podcast. Very cool. Thank you.